Hello, and thanks for listening into the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. We're a church in Nottingham, England, with a vision to see the church on fire and the city alive. You're about to hear a message in a series called Thy Kingdom Come, where we're walking line by line through the Lord's Prayer. Now, I hope for this series that we'll be inspired and equipped to go deeper in the lifelong adventure of prayer. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, I got a level with you to begin with. I am not a guy that you want around you in a crisis. And I, it, it's difficult for me to admit that to you, but it's, it's just the truth. And the reason that I know it's the truth is because around the occasion of our second child, Joseph's birth, I had an opportunity to be the hero. I had an opportunity to step up in a miraculous almost way uh, to prove myself to be the true man, the man who uh, can not only build a fire, but who can deliver a baby. Yes, that's right. Amy and I went to hospital and uh, she was deep in labor, but for whatever reason, we were sent home back to our house. And so uh, it was about, I think, midnight at this point, And we'd done all sorts of sort of pre-birth prep. And Amy had, uh, she had a bath and then we went to bed about, as I say, midnight. And maybe about 15 minutes later, at best, the contractions, which were already fairly strong, began to uh, began to intensify. And Amy said the words that no husband ever wants to hear when he's in his bed. <laughs> and here they are. Johnny, the baby's coming. <laughs> And uh, in that moment, I tell you, I felt a panic unlike any panic I had ever felt before. Uh, we, we got her dressed, which was an ordeal in itself. Between contractions, we managed to get her to the car. By the time we reached the car, a little Honda Civic, and I started it up at Battersea, Wandsworth in London, my hands were shaking on the wheel. The adrenaline was coursing through. I, I took a route to the hospital, which went over so many speed bumps, which was quite difficult for Amy. She was holding on to the handle in the car and praying in tongues. That didn't help me. That didn't lower the level of panic I was feeling. We, we drove around a little bit and, and, and ended up probably about three to five minutes later uh, with her saying, I can't go on any longer. <laughs> it's 1 a.m., it's dark. The car is by the side of the street. We're on Garrett Road in London. And I go round to the other side, uh, open the door, and Amy's screaming at this point. And I, with my mobile phone, my hand shaking, <laughs> call the ambulance. And, uh, and I ask for help. I, I, I cry out for help in the middle of this crisis. And um, I would love to say that within three minutes, the ambulance was with us. But that's not the case. What actually happened was the guy on the phone, it took me a while to realize this. But in the in final event, I realized that what he was trying to do was coach me through delivering my own baby. <laughs> and that was, an, that was something I wasn't prepared for. And there was one moment where I realized I'd completely lost it, where he said to me the words which I'll never forget, sir, use the word sir, can you see the head? And I, that was something I was unwilling to do. <laughs> and, so he, and, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to calm down. And that was perhaps the most humiliating moment of my life, which I let you into just now. 
And one of the reasons I think that I hated that crisis and I just don't enjoy crisis is because crisis connects me more than anything else with my weakness and with my limitation. It was in that moment that I came to realize that I'm not the man that I thought I was. I'm not the sort of stiff, upper lip guy who can just sort of just breeze through things uh, unhelped. It, was, um, it wasn't until I uh, had the opportunity to deliver my own child that I realized how incapable I was. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you too, in the midst of this crisis, this pandemic in which uh, we're all enveloped, maybe you feel that same sense of having reached your limit, having hit the skids, if you like. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what we and what, what some of the heroes in Scripture uh, have done in the midst of crisis. And we've looked at the Apostle Paul, at how he encouraged the people of Corinth to take heart, to uh, look to Christ, to connect with their own vulnerability, to lean back into the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at King David at how, uh, having mourned and wept with his people, very similar to the Apostle Paul, he found strength in the Lord his God. In both stories, what we see is a, a, a person, a human being who has reached the end of their own capacity, finding in that moment a connection with God that they hitherto, that they before that point hadn't been able to access what I want to do today is tell a very similar story and make a very similar point. And the reason we've preached three almost identical sermons in three weeks is because this is what God is doing in us, in me certainly. And I believe it's what God's doing more generally and what he wants to do in his church. And so I want to tell two stories. And the first concerns a man called Jacob. We're going to go through Jacob's life scene by scene. Now Jacob, scene one, Jacob is the son of Isaac, who was himself Abraham's son. So we're talking right at the beginning of the story of faith. He was a twin, and his twin brother Esau, who was, was the older of the two brothers. Now when they were being born, Esau was the first to emerge from his mother's womb, and he was covered in red hair, and that's how he actually came to get his name. Esau means hairy. But when the next son came out, Jacob, what, what was happening was that Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel. And so they gave him the name Jacob, which means he grasps the heel. That's a Hebrew idiom, a phrase, a turn of phrase, which means he deceives or he supplants. You see, something significant in Jacob's makeup was being revealed in this first moment. The, first, the, the moment of origin, if you like, uh, was describing something of Jacob's DNA, something of what made him who he became. And what we find out about Jacob in this first scene is that he wanted to be first more than anything else. He wanted to be empowered. He wanted to win. That's what mattered to Jacob. And that attitude was what was going to define him from this point onward. And I have to say, I relate to that. I am a Hughes and you don't know my family necessarily, but if you did, you would be aware that we're a competitive bunch. We compete with each other over things that we consider to be significant. And by that, I simply mean sports. 
But we also compete over things which are really, really trivial. Competition is what is in us. And that has created some real good for us. We've enjoyed ourselves on the sports field and various other things. But it's also been, I think, hugely detrimental <laughs> to our state of mind. And my own psychology certainly has benefited, but also significantly suffered from that over the years. I resonate with Jacob, though. I know what it's like to strive to go for something and to want to achieve something great. In fact, that expectation has been in me from as long, from as young as I can remember. Scene two. The next snapshot in Jacob's life takes place a few years later, although in the scripture, if you're reading, it's actually only a few verses later. And what we find is that Jacob and Esau have grown up a little bit, a few years have passed. And what happens is that Esau has been working hard in the fields and he's absolutely famished. And he happens upon Jacob, who's been cooking a stew, a lentil stew. Unless you're perhaps a vegetarian or a vegan, uh, maybe you with me would say that that's not necessarily the most appetizing thing out there. I did a Daniel fast recently and, and lentil stew was pretty much all I ate for about two weeks. And I got bored of it fairly quickly, but because Esau's so hungry, he finds this lentil stew, a touch of basil, some thyme, maybe a little bit of tarragon and a bay leaf. He finds it just overpowering to his senses and his hunger drives him to beg Jacob to give him some of this stew. He wants it. He has to have it. And Jacob, the deceiver, the one who supplants, the one who grasps the heel, sees in this moment the opportunity he's been waiting for all of his life. This is his moment. This is the time to supplant his brother, to win, to overpower, to manipulate and to deceive. And so in this moment, he grasps his brother's heel metaphorically and he trips him up. He does a deal with him. He says, look, I'll give you some of this lentil stew, but I want something in return, Esau. I want your birthright. Now, the birthright in this culture was the right to be considered the oldest son. It was a hugely significant thing. It mattered a great deal. It was about prominence. It was about privilege. It was about inheritance. And Jacob goes for this birthright. And Esau does something so foolish. He despises his birthright. He makes a deal with Jacob. This is the very thing that Jacob was gunning for in the womb. And in this moment, he gets it. He trades away his position with his brother for a bowl of minestrone. Scene three. It gets worse. Jacob has half of what he wants, but he doesn't have the whole thing. You see, Jacob knows that Esau is his father's favorite. And the reason is that Esau would prepare game for his father. He'd prepare uh, uh, meat for his father. Dad loved a barbecue and, and Esau was the one who knew how to do that. And so as Isaac's life draws to a close, Jacob knows that there is a moment coming which would come for every family like this where Isaac is going to give a blessing to each of his sons. And he knows that the blessing that Esau will get will be greater than Jacob's blessing. And he wants that. He wants not only the birthright, but also the blessing. And so he concocts a plan with his mother, which essentially is designed, it's elaborate, I won't go into it now, but it is designed to steal the blessing from his brother Esau and therein to completely displace and replace him 
to overturn him, to supplant him, to grasp his heel, not just to trip him up, but to turn him over. Now again, we need to understand that for the Hebrew people, a blessing wasn't just a set of words, not just sort of a pat on the back or a birthday card. See, they believed that just in the same way that God spoke creation into existence, so with our words we were able and are able to speak life or curse over people. And by the way, this is still true. And you see this all around us. We know this, don't we? Because some of us have had teachers who have blessed us or parents who have blessed us. And in the areas of their blessing, we've flourished. And on the contrary, some of us have had teachers or parents who have cursed us. Teachers have said, you'll never amount to anything. Or parents have said, you'll never amount to anything. Parents, teachers have said, you're rubbish at art. And all of a sudden, we can't draw a stick, man. We know that words have power. And so Jacob goes to receive the blessing that belongs to Esau. And this is the blessing that Isaac gives him. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. It is complete in this moment. Jacob has not only the birthright, the prominence and the position, but he has the blessing He has the favor. He has his future through the words of his father sewn up. And there's nothing left when Esau arrives to Isaac. There's nothing left for him to give. Esau leaves empty. Now Jacob at this moment knows he has to flee because he hears that Esau wants his life. And so he does. He flees from him. And he goes into the wilderness. And there he finds a man called Laban, or rather he finds Laban's daughter, He finds two of his daughters, Leah and Rachel, and he spends a a period of time in the wilderness and he serves Laban for 14 years for both, uh, both daughters. He himself is deceived by Laban. For the first time in his life, he comes up against somebody who's more adept at deception than him. The deceiver is deceived. But in that period of time, he becomes immensely wealthy as he sees the blessing that his father has given him play out into his life. And he receives not just wives and children, but also huge material blessing, sheep, cattle, and the like. And at a point in time, he makes a calculation. And the calculation is that by the time, by, because of the time that's elapsed, perhaps by now his, his brother's anger will have abated. Isaac is long gone. And so he makes a decision to flee from Laban and to go back, to take hold of the fullness of the inheritance that belongs to him. Now he gets away uh, from Laban. It proves a bit more difficult than he'd imagined, but he manages it. And finally he reaches the Jabbok, a stream that he has to cross in order to meet his brother. All that's separating him from his brother and from this, I suppose this judgment day, is this small stream. And what we read uh, is in the text is that his brother knows he's coming and he comes out with 400 of his men. And Jacob in this moment fears the worst. He fears that this is the moment of payback. And the text says this, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Do you see what he's doing? Even in this moment of judgment, even this moment of payback, potentially, 
He's maneuvering. He's manipulating. He's seeking to deceive. He's using all of his human power and his acumen, his political ability to find a way through the crisis in his own human strength. He prays. He selects a generous gift for his brother and he sends that ahead across the stream as well. And finally now, finally after all these years, Jacob is alone. He's alone with himself. He's alone with his past. He's alone with his sin. He's alone with his deception. He's alone with his fear. And in that moment, something happens that neither he nor the reader of the text expects. A man arrives out of the darkness and begins to wrestle with him. And they wrestle through the night. And for a moment, perhaps it feels as though Jacob is going to win. Except the man won't let him go. Dawn is approaching. Jacob rather won't let the man go. And the man says, you have to let me go. This is what we read in chapter 32. Amy's already read it to us. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, Jacob's still thirsting for more. But he's thirsting in this occasion for a different kind of blessing. The man asked him, what is your name? The deceiver, he answered. Jacob, he answered. Jacob knows who he is, but he cries out for a blessing from this man. And the blessing comes in a shape that none of us would expect. Here are some words written by an incredible writer, a teacher, Frederick Buchner, which I want to read to you just for a moment. It's actually a fairly long quote, so bear with me. It says, all the night long, all the night through, they struggle in silence until just before morning, when it looks as though a miracle might happen. Jacob is winning. The stranger cries out to be set free before the sun rises. Then suddenly all is reversed. He merely touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And in a moment, Jacob is lying there crippled and helpless. The sense we have, which Jacob must have had, that the whole battle was from the beginning fated to end this way, that the stranger had simply held back until now, letting Jacob exert all his strength and almost win, so that when he was defeated, he would know that he was truly defeated. So that he would know that not all the shrewdness, will, brute force that he could muster were enough to get this. Jacob will not release his grip. Only now, it is a grip, not of violence, but of need. Like the grip of a drowning man. The darkness has faded just enough so that for the first time he can dimly see his opponent's face. And what he sees is something more terrible than the face of death. The face of love. It is vast and strong, half ruined with suffering and fierce with joy. The face a man flees down all the darkness of his days until at last he cries out, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Not a blessing that he can now have by the strength of his cunning or the force of his will, but a blessing he can only have as a gift. 
You see, in this moment, Jacob realizes that a blessing is available. And Jacob is never one to miss out on a blessing. But the blessing that's available is not a blessing that he can command or commandeer by his own power. It is only a blessing available through gift. And it is a blessing that comes in a mysterious package. It is a blessing that comes in weakness. The man reaches out to touch Jacob. He touches him and he wounds him. He wounds him in his hip socket. The iliofemoral ligament with a tensile strength exceeding 350 kilograms. The strongest point of any human being, the hip. The point of Jacob's greatest strength. That's where the angel touches him and wounds him. It's as if he's saying, Jacob, I want you to walk from this moment in a new way, with a new blessing. Only it's not going to look like the way you've walked from this moment. Up until this moment, it's going to be different. I want you to walk with a limp. I want you to walk in weakness, not in strength, in grace, not in striving. And to prove that point, along with the wound, Jacob receives a new name. The Jacob, the deceiver, the one who supplants, the one who grasps the heel becomes Israel. The one who is known for wrestling, the one who is known for his greatest defeat, the magnificent defeat, not defined by his ability to achieve or to win or to strive or to overpower, but by the wound that God gave him, by the moment that he was defeated by one greater than he. All this reminds me of my favorite poem by Rilke called The Man Watching. Here's what Rilke said. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. This is what God wants to do for us. This is what God wants to do with us. He wants to need us. He wants to work in us. He wants to grow us, but not necessarily by adding to our strength, but by bringing us into friendship with our weakness. There was a man like Jacob, more recently than Jacob. His name was D.L. Moody. He was incredibly successful. He was a revivalist preacher. He was a, an organizer. He worked with the YMCA and other movements throughout Chicago. And God was using him. But he felt God calling him to spreading the gospel wider. But he didn't want to give up on all he'd worked for. He wasn't willing to surrender himself fully to God. And then in the moment, even at, in his success, two women came to him and said, Moody, we're praying for you that you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and Moody said, what? He was offended. He knew he was strong. He saw his works, his power, and he was offended that they would say this to him. And yet they did. They continued to pray that this power of the Holy Spirit would come upon him. And then one evening, Moody was uh, leading a revival or a, a prayer meeting. And uh, at the end of the meeting, they heard the fire engines blaring past the, the building where they were, and, and it was the night of the Chicago fire. They escaped from the building. Uh, they sent everybody home, and they went to, Moody went to his house, and he grasped all his belongings, his family, and they escaped the fire. 
but Chicago was decimated. All of his life's work went up in flames. Moody fled, he went to New York, and he arrived in New York. He said this, I could not appeal uh, for money. He said, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. Goes on to say, his prayer remained unanswered because he fought the will of God. Farewell Hall and Illinois Street were in ashes. Those are the sites of his ministry. The ten or dozen committees had scattered like dying embers. Nor could Moody face the weariness and reorganization. Had God then burned him out that he should go all over the country? Perhaps the world? Moody said no. The chains that bound him to Chicago had snapped all but one. His own will. See, Moody was like Jacob, standing with the angel, with the question before him, will you surrender to me? Will you give me everything? Will you surrender even your will? Yet he craved power. He began to pace New York streets at night, wrestling, panting for a Pentecost. In broad daylight, he walked down one of the busiest streets, Broadway or Fifth Avenue. He scarcely remembered which, while crowds thrust by and the clop clink of cabs and carriages was in his ears and the newsboys shouted. The last chain snapped. Quietly, without a struggle, he surrendered. Immediately, an overpowering sense of the presence of God flooded his soul. God Almighty seemed to come very near. I felt I must be alone. He hurried to the house of a friend nearby and went into a room. The room seemed ablaze with God. He dropped to the floor and lay bathing his soul in the divine. Of this communion, this mount of transfiguration, he said, I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Turmoil of mind glided into peace. Conflict of character snapped into integration. That masterful strength, which is Moody's, which had hammered at the gates of hell and charged full tilt at the world. The flesh and the devil was melted and remolded to leave him gentle as a babe, utterly dependent on a power beyond his own, not for him to see and choose his path, nor pride to rule his will. God must lead and God supply. Moody need never thirst again. The dead, dry days were gone. He said, I was all the time tugging and carrying water, but now I have a river that carries me. Moody. Jacob, they are like us, men who are desperately in need of God, men and women of the church. We need him. We need his power. We need the blessing that we cannot have through our own efforts. And let me tell you, I have tried. I have tried. One of the lessons, this is the lesson I feel God speaking to me about. And honestly, I'm exhausted in trying. This last week has been the hardest of lockdown. As I come to the end of myself, the end of my strength, I don't have anything left to give. No human power, no strategy, no energy. Perhaps God is bringing me here to revive me, to renew me. Perhaps that's what God has in you. Perhaps that's what God has for you. Perhaps you feel you're being defeated at the moment. I do. Perhaps you feel acquainted with weakness. I do. Consider the possibility that God may actually be preparing you now for a blessing that is so great you've never been able to imagine it and you would never be able to conjure it. But it comes through weakness. It comes through wounding. 
Perhaps you're new to faith and you're wondering what this is all about. And you don't know if you even believe in God, but you know that you're weak. And you know that you have need for something beyond yourself. Open yourself to the possibility that God is able to supply the need that you have. Open your heart to him and ask him. Say if you're real. If you're who you say you are, come to me. Meet with me. Fill me with your spirit. Lead me. And I believe this is a message for the church because I believe this is a time where God is leading the church to the end of herself, not to establish new platforms, not to work in the same human power that we've been holding in our hands to this point, but to submit and surrender ourselves to him, to allow ourselves and to acquaint ourselves with human weakness so that his power might be made perfect through our weakness. I'll end with Buchner. And I've thrown the book down on the floor now, so I'll have to quote from the iPad. Power, success, happiness, as the world knows them, are his who will fight for them hard enough. But peace, joy, love are only from God. As God is the enemy who Jacob fought there by the river, of course, and whom in one way or another we all of us fight. God, the beloved enemy, our enemy because Before giving us everything, he demands of us everything. Before giving us life, he demands our lives, ourselves, our wills, our treasure. Will we give them, you and I? I do not know. Only remember the last glimpse we have of Jacob limping home against the great conflagration of the dawn. Remember Jesus of Nazareth staggering on broken feet out of the tomb toward resurrection, bearing on his body the proud insignia of the defeat that is victory, the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Will you surrender to God? Will you give him your all? Will you surrender your whole life into his hands, trusting that he does only good for you? Will you give in to this beloved enemy in whose face is love and only love? If you do, you will receive a new name. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did both individually and in our lives together so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening.